This is the Biblical Mind Podcast, produced by the Center for Hebraic Thought. Honest five-star reviews help others find this podcast. Visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org for articles and videos that explore the deep structures of Scripture. Well, a lot of Christians have a hard time, you know, thinking about the significance of ritual for their faith. Uh, when they come to rituals in the Old Testament, they get really confused. They see them as repetitive, they see them as mechanistic, and, and they just don't know what to do with them. Um, but when we compare Old Testament ritual with the Christian sacraments, we see that there's just a lot of connections, and that Old Testament ritual has a lot of significance for us and for our faith. And so it it might be helpful to just define ritual and sacrament so we have an idea of what we're talking about here. And when it comes to ritual, we could say that it's an act or ceremonial observance, an observance or series of actions regularly or habitually repeated. I, I just took that out of the oh, Oxford okay. English Dictionary. But basically, basically what that means is that uh, we're dealing with an action that we do on a regular basis or a semi-regular basis, and it's often connected with, with religion. And when we're thinking about ritual in the Old Testament, we see that there's, there's obviously a lot of ritual. Most of it's found in the book of Leviticus. We could take a look at like Leviticus 1 through 7 and then 11 through 16. Those chapters deal a lot with uh, the instructions for sacrifice, for example, or ceremonial purity and the Day of Atonement. But there's also a lot of rituals that are interspersed in, uh, you know, just throughout the Pentateuch. We find rituals regarding different festivals, for example, uh, like Passover. We find rituals that deal with the responsibilities of the, the priests and the Levites, for example. That's a, a, another thing. Yeah, can I stop you there? Because I, I, at least I can interject because I can imagine somebody asking, uh, you, you've automatically connected rituals to repetition. Um, and I think for Christians, they'll say, but wait, isn't like the big ritual in the Old Testament circumcision? It's a one-time thing only. And in, in the New Testament, isn't one of the big rituals a one-time thing, a baptism? Although baptism was a, re a repetitive practice in, in the New Testament period. But for Christians, isn't it just a one-time only thing? And, and there is some truth to that where we do have rituals like circumcision, circumcision like you're saying, and then baptism in Christian theology that are that are one-time things. But despite that, there's definitely a lot of uh, application significance that we can draw from that because rituals uh, shape character formation. They help us to remember. And, and, and even if we, we do that once, it's a reminder of those kinds of aspects that come into play with ritual. So my baptism might be a one-time thing, but I'm participating as a community member in other people's baptisms over and over. And those are meant kind of like a, a wedding as a one-time ritual, but we're participating mm -hmm. in wedding ritual culture, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're part of something bigger when you're doing it. Uh, now, you just casually mentioned, we'll come back to sacrament in a second, but you just casually threw in there that rituals form us and shape us in some way. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think that that's how most Christians I know think of rituals. Uh, and they, I think if they think of them more like a slot machine handle, you pull it and you get something. Sometimes you get something, sometimes you don't. 
Um, uh-huh. So how do you think that, what's the formative aspect of these rituals? Well, there's a, there's a few different aspects to this. Uh, and, and you talk about this in, in some of your books, Drew, if I can borrow some of your language, where you talk about these mm. scripts that we have, right? And so a ritual is basically like a, like a script where it tells you what to do. It, it, it tells you what practices to carry out. And that helps to shape your identity. And, and, and maybe I can back up before I think about the, the Christian application of this, but you know, start off with the, mm-hmm. what we see in ancient Israel and how ritual plays a role in their character mm-hmm. formation. And yeah. then we can, we can connect the dots. But when we think about Israelite ritual, we have to remember that it's given at Mount Sinai and so it's part of God's instruction, and and sometimes we talk about it as the law, but it's mm-hmm. it's a lot broader than that. That's what Hebrew uh, Torah means, right? It's not just do's and don'ts, but it's it's instruction. God wants to teach His people about Himself, mm-hmm. uh, about themselves, and how they're supposed to relate to each other. And so He He makes them His people at Sinai. This is a really uh, significant turning point in their history. And when He does this when he makes them his people at Sinai, he's essentially giving them a different script. They were slaves in Egypt, and that's what they were used to. They had these practices, these rituals that that they knew of when they were there, but God takes them out of Egypt, and they're found without a script. It's a really disorienting thing. And uh, again, that's something that you talk about in your, in your books, but then God gives them a clear identity. He gives them a, a particular script for them to follow. And this is uh, something that we see, for example, in Mm. Leviticus 20, 23 through uh, 26, where God says, you must not live according to the customs of the nations I'm going to drive out before you. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. So we see this idea that God is giving them an identity Exodus also mm. talks about a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. But so he's he's essentially giving them a script that's going to shape who they are. I think, yeah, I think a lot – that's very helpful because I, I've even seen this with theologians and biblical scholars quickly default to that we're supposed to know things about God, uh, that a lot of what the biblical authors are doing is showing us what we should know about God, about creation – and I, like you, and I think Leon Cass has highlighted this heavily in his new book on Exodus as well, that uh, the people of Israel need to figure out who they are, actually, and that they're in this, they, mm-hmm. they have been in this relationship with this God, and they need to understand it in a new way. And um, it is interesting that before they ever leave Egypt, God is already giving them um, not just the Passover night ritual, but the Passover ceremony that, that, that is slightly different that they're to do from that point on. So he's already telling them, how to remember an event that they haven't experienced yet. Um, so it's setting up for, up for this mm-hmm. this new identity. Where do you see mm-hmm. that that kind of identity formation as strongly in the New Testament? Because um, I know a lot of Christians are going to think, "Yeah, I'm I'm a Christian. That's the identity." But does it go beyond merely labeling yourself as a Christian? It does. I mean, because the way that the New Testament talks about being a Christian is certainly much more than okay. I have this label that I put upon myself. But this is, this is who I am. This is who God has made me to be. He's made me someone who is, who is redeemed, no longer separated from him. But as part of that, just like there were for the ancient Israelites, there's going to be certain practices, a, a certain hmm. way that you live out 
that particular identity, I think. Yeah, and I, you made a shift there, which I think most people would follow with, but I wonder if if you see any consonants. Uh, you, we went from talking about Israel as a people group and their identity now to individuals. Uh, do you think it's just individual identity that's at stake in the, in the New Testament? Oh, no, there's, there's, there's definitely a corporate identity. And this is something that, for example, if I can yeah, now make the shift from Old Testament ritual to, uh, to, to New Testament practice, we see the uh, sacrament of baptism, for example, right? Okay, and so this is something which we do individually. I mean, each person who participates in the Eucharist is, 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 is practicing it. They're taking the, the, the cup and the bread, and yet we do it as, as a church, as a community, and not just the local church mm. that's celebrating it, but we have churches who are doing this all throughout the course of the world. And when we, when we practice the Eucharist, when we celebrate it, we're commemorating how together we are united in God. We've been redeemed. We've been uh, reunited to him. We're also commemorating and celebrating how we're united together, right? I mean, reconciliation, not just with God, but with each other is a big part of of, of what the Eucharist celebrates. We're, we're told to make sure that we're right with each other before we hmm. before we uh, partake of it. So, so there's that, but there's also, you know, we can think about how the Eucharist is also looking forward to, to the future, to this time of uh, celebration, to this time in which we're going to participate in this, uh, you know, the, the great hmm. marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're doing that together as God's people. And so, so yes, I mean, there are certainly individual elements, but there's also very strong communal ones there as well. Yeah, I, as I constantly like to rattle off, the many of the yous in, in the New Testament are y'alls, uh, and mm-hmm. that helps us to remember it's the, that it's aimed at the body, not the individual, or the individual body within the corporate body, as uh, mm-hmm. some people say. Mm-hmm. Um, if we go back, or maybe go back and forth, ping pong. Uh, I always struggle with uh, s- Sabbath. So, and I'm, everybody struggles with Sabbath. The rabbis struggled mm-hmm. with Sabbath. Everybody's trying to figure out what do you do with Sabbath. But yep. is Sabbath? There's not really any instruction for it in Scripture outside of s- cessation from work, um, which has created no end of discussion amongst ancient scholars and modern scholars. Um, but is Sabbath? A ritual is not doing something a ritual, and and that uh, or because we have to improvise a little bit on well, what does it mean to not to not work, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's definitely some improvis- improvisation that needs to take place as we're thinking about how to practice Sabbath, and there's going to be that for the Israelites and and us today. I, I think one thing that's been helpful for me as I think about it is what is the what is the larger principle behind Sabbath that God is trying to teach the Israelites and maybe teach us today? And when you think about, again, this idea of a script and how God is giving them a new script, we see that Sabbath fits into that very well, right? Because they were slaves in Egypt. They had to work seven days out of the week. They didn't have this this break necessarily, but God is taking them out of Egypt and he's saying, okay, now you're my people. You can work six days, but then you have that seventh day that you can rest on. And so this is this is part of their new identity. But God is trying to teach them through this as well. He's not just trying to, 
trying to say, okay, you're my people and you have this new identity, but here's what this means. You can, you can actually trust me to not work on that seventh day because I'm the one who's in control and I'm the one who provides for you. I mean, this, I think this is one of the points of the stories about the manna, right? Where God says, collect all that you'll need for two days on the day before the Sabbath. And then I'm going to give you what you need. And you're not going to need to actually collect manna on the Sabbath then. And so I'm going to provide for you. And so there's this principle of God's sovereignty and provision that we see for ancient Israel. And that's definitely something that applies to us today, I think. So when we're thinking about the the practices, you know, how we're supposed to go about our, our Sabbath, obviously we're, we're going to be ceasing from certain activities. But the way I like to think about it is, okay, what can I do that's also going to help me to remember God's mm-hmm. sovereignty and that I can depend upon him? I, I don't need to work every day of the week because I can trust him. And, and that's a really important message, I think, for our very frantic, work-centered culture. Yeah, it might be the case that Sabbath is the most neglected. I mean, you just made the the assumption that Christians should also be practicing some sort of day of rest. Mm-hmm. But uh, if I were to poll my students, I would bet most of them came from families where they kind of maybe did a day day of rest on Sundays. Um, but their actual college life—that's uh, the first thing that goes right out the window—is is Sabbath. Um, they just they just push straight through, um, and. Th- for all kinds of reasons, the the cultural scripts uh, have introduced been introduced to them. Like, no, you just you don't need that anymore. You can move on, or or the college scripts, the university scripts of well, you got to get your homework done, you know, and you got to I got to have time for everything. So, mm-hmm. yeah, um, we uh, you talked in the at the very beginning about rituals versus sacraments, and uh, so I guess you've read my book, so you know I don't really know what to do with sacraments. I don't know what to do with the term, but you seem to have it worked out. So I'm very uh, excited to hear hear what 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 you think sacraments are and how it fits into this, because I've been looking for someone to explain all of this to me. Well, I can't say I've got it all figured out, but uh, <laughs> when it comes to sacraments, I think we can think about them in two ways. We can talk about the mm-hmm. sacraments proper of the church. And so if we're thinking about what those are, we could just go to, say, for example, the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and, and how they talk about it. They say that it's an outward and visible sign of inward and spiritual grace given by Christ as sure and certain means by which we receive that grace. So that they're, they're basically a tangible sign of our covenant relationship with Christ and we experience his presence, his grace somehow through them. And Christians disagree ab- about this topic. Right. How, how many are there? How many sacraments are there? What do they signify? But I, at the most basic level, we can talk about baptism and, and Eucharist. Right. The, the minimalist set that we all agree upon. Um, right. And yeah, interestingly, what, what, what interests me is that in, in the creation, you have two rituals, marriage and uh, Sabbath, that are given but uh, have never properly been introduced into Protestant – well, I take that back. They've been ping-ponged in and out of Protestant theology um, since there was Protestantism. But, yeah, I think 
do you have any sense of why marriage and creation, the Catholic Church, obviously, the Orthodox Church, uh, includes those as the mysteries of the sacraments? Um, why we continue to kind of I'm not I'm not arguing for any kind of include I'm not I'm not asking anybody to rearrange their theology but uh-huh. um yeah what is it about those two that keeps them on on the edge of the bubble um and and baptism and communion in the center well I think one thing that has probably influenced the way at least Protestants determine okay what's what's important for us as sacraments and what's not is is just the the teaching of the New Testament itself, the way that Jesus himself and then Paul comes along. They both talk about Passover and they they uh, they transform this ritual, um, but they specifically talk about how it's supposed to be practiced. Uh, whereas something like marriage is more assumed that it's going to happen. And even though we can talk about how it might have sacramental elements, it's not commanded or prescribed in quite the same way. Yeah. So maybe thinking of an inner inner ring of rituals and then a, a adjacent ring of rituals that uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So what makes them sacramental rather than just saying rituals? That's the, that's the big humdinger for me. Mm-hmm. I I think it goes back to that definition, the way that the Book of Common Prayer talks about it, how it's a it's a tangible sign and it's it's a, a thing in which God's presence is experienced in a special way. Yeah. Now, certainly we can talk about how God's presence is experienced, you know, if we're going about our day in certain moments, in certain things that we do, but at least the way that the church has talked about it, and, um, you know, people who come from that kind of tradition, they'll talk about the Eucharist, for example, in this particular way, that they experience a, a deeper sense of, of God in that moment when they take the Eucharist. They sense his presence in a unique way. And it's reminding them of their relationship with him. And so there's a little bit of a difference when we think about the presence of God in, in the rest of our lives, right. perhaps. Yeah, and, and you have both that kind of that individual instance where people may or – I mean, there's also – you know, you and I have been long, alive long enough to know that you might go weeks without feeling, feeling or experiencing that. So there's that formative version of doing it every week, week in and week out, being with the body, doing those things. Uh, versus, uh, you know, those times where you sense God's presence for, and not, yeah, I think it's, I think it's fair to say that Jesus and his disciples emphasize these two, these two sacraments, uh, both in form and just emphasis in the gospels. If you look at what shows up the gospel, baptism and, um, baptism and the Eucharist show up, um, I'm surely your students say, well, we don't do any of those Old Testament rituals anymore. I, I'm throwing a, a question out of left field at you here. How do you respond to that? We don't do any of those rituals anymore. Well, I'd say we don't necessarily do the same kinds of rituals that they do. I mean, we're not offering sacrifices. We're not celebrating the exact same festivals. But we certainly have behaviors, practices and, and we don't think of them as rituals, but they're things that we do on a regular basis. And they kind of take on religious significance in, in some ways. You know, how do you go about your day when you wake up? What's the first thing that you do? How, how do you, you know, what, what are your practices for breakfast mm-hmm. and then coming home at the end of the day? And then your rituals throughout the day. Those are all things that we do on a regular basis and they may not be exactly like ancient Israelite ritual, but they're these, these practices that we have that define who we are 
and even mm. shape who we are in a lot of ways too. Yeah, I also kind of push back a little bit and say, I, I think the New Testament authors are pretty clear that we actually do participate in animal sacrifice, the sacrifice of the lamb, uh, and that it, it is eating his flesh and drinking his blood. <clears throat> actually, the weird part for Jews, first century Jews, I think would be drinking the blood because you're, you know, <laughs> you're not supposed to do that, right? That's verboten. Um, right. But that, that we are participating in some way in, a, in an animal sacrifice, just no longer the, uh, the actual sacrifice itself. And uh, I do maybe thinking uh, more broadly about the kind of the teaching and instruction of the Hebrew Bible. So there's instructions on how to sow and reap in your fields. There's instructions on how to treat people who work for you. There are instructions on how to build your house. You know, they have to build safety mechanisms in the parapet in your house. And um, there's all these instructions for daily life. Like, do those all go by the wayside too? Or, uh, you know, kind of stepping out of ritual and more into the broadly the more Old Testament use in the New Testament. Do you see those as kind of fading away and, and the glory of the New Testament freedoms of liberty and we can kind of do whatever we want? I think definitely when it comes to a lot of the specific practices, again, just like the the rituals proper, how we don't have to carry them out in the same way. So we're not going to be living like ancient Israelites just because we're we're not. And so we don't have to do a lot of their their practices. But when it comes to thinking about the principles behind those practices, there's potential for thinking about how those principles might might apply today in a in a different kind of way. Mm. So you, you mentioned the example of a of a parapet of how the Israelites were supposed to build this mm. on their roofs so that people aren't going to fall off and get hurt. Well, we don't necessarily have to put parapets on every house today, but that principle of, okay, how can I protect life, especially in construction, that may apply. And I think that also ties in with the, with the Decalogue and just this idea of don't kill. You know, if we frame that positively as, mm. as protect life, preserve life, okay, how mm. can we put that into practice in our specific rituals and our behaviors? Well, that's certainly something for us to think about. Oh, that's a that's a great. I would have never connected the Ten Commandments to a parapet, uh, but I, I just want to highlight that move you just made. There is a is a brilliant move that <laughs> the Ten Commandments are kind of principles in them. I mean, even saying "Don't kill," you know, those handled those handed down those tablets in the hands of a guy who had murdered somebody uh, by a god who just killed a bunch of children in Egypt, and then he gets down to the base of the mountain and they strap on swords and kill three thousand of their countrymen. So even the idea of what does it mean to kill, what does it mean to preserve life, uh, to, to create conditions for flourishing of life is already a little ambiguous, but it gets teased out in all these little ways, like a parapet on your house, um, like preserving the life of people who are sojourning who don't have access to food all the time. You leave some on the edge of your field. Yeah, that was great, great move you made there. I love those kinds of uh, ways of thinking through it. Um, which so that, But that seems to indicate so this, I'm, I'm throwing my hardest questions at you now because you seem to be able to handle it. So when you get to Jesus's teaching, do we need to know any of this? I'm, I'm trying to think, can we just go with what Jesus says and kind of chunk all this? Because I know a lot of people look at the, the Torah, the, the first five books of the Bible, and they're like, oh my goodness, that is a lot. And okay, yeah, there are principles there. Love your neighbors yourself. Love the foreigners yourself. Do not hate your brother in your heart, you know, Leviticus. Um 
But man, all that other stuff. Uh, can't we just start with Jesus? Gideon's Bible, the whole thing out, you know? I, I don't think we can do that. For one thing, when we take a look at what Jesus is doing when he when he gives the the Jewish people this new instruction, you know, think about the Sermon on the Mount, for example. He's basically setting himself up as a as a new Moses. There's there's a number of parallels between uh, Moses in the Old Testament and then what Jesus is doing. He's he's giving a new law, so to speak. But the whole idea of of, of what we find in the Old Testament, you know, being a prophet like Moses, there's not going to be significant contradictions. It's going to build upon it. Mm. And so when Jesus is giving mm. his instructions to the Jewish people there in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not totally changing things. He's building on that foundation that Moses had given. And we can't really understand what Jesus is saying then unless we understand that foundation, what Jesus is building on. Yeah. I mean, he even says in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I've come to fulfill it, right? Um, so you have that sense of the fuller sense. Um, what do you think, you know, if you were to sit down with a group of, like, let's say, college kids or baby boomers today and say, look, here's the thing that you're not, you, you guys are getting confused about rituals with, um, or the things that you're neglecting, or you're, you're getting triggered too easily by the word ritual. Here's what you need to understand. What's, what's like the, what are the talking points you're walking those people through? I think I've, something I've seen myself and, and definitely seen a lot of my students is just this idea that ritual is is boring and mechanistic and formulaic. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of, okay, I, I go through these particular motions and then I'm guaranteed a result mm -hmm. and, and it's done. And there's no relational component to it. It's just very, mm -hmm. me very mechanistic. That's something that I've, I, I've seen a lot in, in my students. And so when they come to the Old Testament ritual, they're like, okay, well, what do we do with this? Because it, it seems very mechanistic. And, the thing that I try to emphasize for them, there's a few things, I guess, but one is that ritual is given because God wants to be with his people. So the sacrifices, for example, God gives them to, to the Israelites so that they have a way of dealing with impurity and sin. And so that's so that his uh, presence can still be among them. So there's that. We see that there's grace even in ritual because God sets up this sacrificial system so that his people can deal with impurity and sin. You know, they need this and he graciously wants to be with them. And so he gives them this means of dealing with it. But there's also a relational component on the Israelites side where they can't just go through the motions. They have to actually do it with the right attitude. One of the things about ritual think this is true uh, cross-culturally, but certainly we see this in ancient Israelite ritual is that there's often use of analogical reasoning where there's parallels made between the elements of the rituals. And when we take a look at what happens in the act of sacrifice, for example, so the offerer brings an animal uh, to be sacrificed, and this animal is supposed to be, be blameless or as perfect as it can be. And this is a symbol it seems when we take a look at Leviticus, a symbol of the, the worshiper himself or herself, that the worshiper is actually offering herself uh, her, her best to God, so to speak. And, and we see that things like 
penitence, confession, those are also associated with the sacrifice. And this is why when we take a look at not just the Old Testament, but throughout the Bible, we, we see this, this emphasis on not just the right procedure, but the right behavior and, and, and the right attitude in the midst of it. You know, a, a passage that comes to mind is like First uh, Samuel 15, uh, 22, I think it is. But God basically tells, tells Saul that what he wants is obedience, that that's important more than, much more so than sacrifice. Yeah. And that, uh, and so some people read that as like, oh, sacrifice doesn't matter at all. Uh, and uh, so can you connect the dots between Israel's justice and their rituals, uh, their the actual how they behave in the world connected to the rituals? Because I think some people would think, oh, as long as you just, they read, I mean, I know they think it because I thought it at one point and my students think it all the time. Oh, you just go through and tick these boxes and you're good to go. Uh, so I'm like, well, hang on till we get to the prophets because the prophets are going to yell at them because they're ticking the boxes, but they're like, it's not, it's still not working out. It's a foul stench. Yeah. And and that again gets back to this idea of the attitude of the heart in it, right? You can go through and you can perform these sacrifices, but if you are worshiping idols, if you're committing social injustice, and yeah, this is definitely something that the prophets really come down hard on the Israelites for, then in some ways it, it just doesn't matter that God is not going to accept a sacrifice that is offered properly, but is not offered with the right with the right heart attitude. We we see that we see examples of this in the Old Testament. You know, even think about Cain's sacrifice. And I, I know there's a little bit of debate as to okay, why was Cain's sacrifice right. rejected? But a lot of it seems to do with the heart, and so God God rejects it. Yeah, yeah. I would go definitely go with what is going on inside Cain is the problem there, not uh, mm-hmm. less so the what kind of offering is given. Um, that's great. Well, Dr. Ben Noonan, thank you so much for helping us connect some of these puzzling dots, I think, for so many people in the church. And thank you for your wisdom. Thanks so much, Drew. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Biblical Mind Podcast, exploring the deep structures of Christian scripture. For more, visit the magazine at thebiblicalmind.org. Subscribe to this podcast at all the usual places so you never miss an episode.